right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up Podcast. Sully here got a great interview with Mike Clayton coming shortly. He was on the podcast, I think, uh, around December 2017, if I remember right, when we were in Melbourne for uh, Torosaw Season 1. Can you believe it? It's been that long ago. So look, I'm, I'm sure not a lot of the, the topics that uh, were on that podcast are top of mind for a lot of listeners. So we may revisit a couple things on uh, distance debate, equipment and things like that as the golf world has evolved on that front some since then. I uh, had a great conversation about that and what he's up to at Seven Mile Beach. We get into great detail about that and ask him for his Australian perspective on uh, on live and what's going on in the golf world as a whole. So uh, well, I'm not going to delay you too long before we get to it, but I got to tell you, I got I shouldn't say tell you, I got to remind you about our friends at Roback who have been incredible supporters of our content this past year. You all know Roback. You see them everywhere because I am seeing them everywhere. They understand quality. There's only one way to describe Roback. It is best fit and best feel. Their performance polos, they fit so much better than your typical boxy polos. Their four-way stretch is next level. Material is super soft, stays wrinkle-free. Secondly, the performance Q-zips are a game changer. I love throwing on a Q-zip in the morning. Great for the fall rounds of golf. Uh, It's still kind of quite warm here in Florida, so I'm taking it off usually around the turn uh, when I do get out to play golf, but I love starting my morning in a row-back Q-zip. They're soft, stretchy, and comfortable, and lastly, the hoodies. What, What do I need to tell you about the hoodies that I haven't already said? They're the stretchiest, softest hoodies in golf. I got a special spot for them in my closet because I've got so many of them now. Nothing beats starting your day in a Roback hoodie. They're gaining traction big time and you can use code NLU at Roback.com for a generous 20% off your first order. That's R-H-O-B-A-C-K.com. 20% off Q-Zips, hoodies, and more with code NLU. They just dropped some joggers as well. I'm actually wearing some of their shorts right now too. Big fan of Roback. Thanks for their support. Code NLU for 20% off. Here's Mike Clayton. Michael Clayton, it has been a while, my friend. What's going on in uh, your part of the world? Well, we're building a golf course at Seven Mile Beach in Hobart for Matt Goggin, who was uh, famous for, well, not famous for, but he was playing with Tom Watson the last round at Turnbury, that fateful day. He was either in the lead or one off the lead with on the 14th hole, so he let a chance slip as well, really. So he's, he's doing this golf course in Hobart, which is always, he told me, 25 years ago, he was going to build a golf course on this strip of land by Hobart Airport. So we're doing that. So I'm off there this morning. Actually, it's kind of early here. It's time is it? Six o'clock. So I'm off there this morning, which will be fun because I haven't seen it for a while. I've been in England and America for, I was away for a month. So I only got back last week. So it's the first chance I've had to get back there for five weeks. Well, if we're doing a podcast with somebody from Australia, one of us is going to have to wake up really early to do it. So we thank you for, for being the one to do it. But I know you got some jet lag here, but you're already, and I had a feeling this might be the case, you're already kind of selling a short on exactly what's going on here at Seven Mile Beach because I've been following it on Instagram and Twitter, seen the pictures, and have been following the project in great detail. And uh, by all accounts and everything I've heard, this looks to be potentially one of the great uh, golf sites ever in the in the world when it when it comes to it. You've seen a lot of places, been a lot of places. You may be a little hesitant to to put that kind of hype on it, but uh, give us kind of your perspective on how this ranks with uh, other places you've seen as far as site wise. Well, I think it's. I mean, obviously, it's really good. It's right on the edge of the water. It's all sand dunes. It's a great shape. So there's you know, at Bunbugal. The original course there just went up and down the narrow strip of dunes between the sea and the farm. 
So it was literally, the, you know, it was a St Andrews type, very narrow links, but this is much wider. So we can change direction a lot more than we did there. All this great remote golf, Sand Hills and Sand Valley and Castle Stewart and Bandon and all these places, they're all a long way from anywhere. And of course, Australia's a long way from anywhere as well, but this is 10 minutes from Hobart Airport and Hobart's a decent sized city. It's got, you know, 300,000 people. It's a it's an hour's flight from Melbourne and Sydney. So it's not as remote as any of these other places, really. There's a big city right on its doorstep. So hopefully it attracts local golfers as well as traveling golfers, which is what all these places rely on is people traveling a long way to get there. So Hobart really, it's got a couple of reasonable 18 hole courses, but nothing in the top 85 in Australia. So this one's going to bump up Hobart's golf quite a way, I think. But yeah, look, it's a great site. We've got a pretty good routing. Mike DeVries is living down there. He's been there for since Christmas. So he's out there every day on a dozer, just feeding his bulldozer habit, as he says. <laughs> well, it, it looks like a site that's meant for golf was born for golf now. It does after you, now that you've done a lot of clearing of trees, because I've, I've seen the before and after photos of this location. What is that process like? And how do you, how do you visualize a golf course without the clear sight lines. I'm always so curious about that. The places where, you know, you need to go in and clear trees to even really see the shape of the ground underneath it. I know there's topo maps and all kinds of things you can do, but how, how do you, how do you go about visualizing something like this without being able to put your feet on the ground and, and see it with your own eyes? Well, we've been going down there for 10 years. We first went down there in 2010. So a dozen years ago. So we had a decent idea of what the site was like, but you couldn't, Apart from the first hole, which was pretty clear, you couldn't see more than 15 feet in front of you in most places. So you were kind of going through the pine forest, feeling the land with your feet and looking at it and trying to figure out, well, yeah, I think there's a hole here. And so once we cleared it, we changed it, a, not, not a lot, but we, yeah, we moved the fourth green 100 yards because once the pines came off, it was obvious well, there was a way better hole over there. So moving the fourth green meant the fifth tee came back 100 yards, which actually made that a better hole. Uncovered two great green sites at the eight, so we built them both. Uh, the 13th green, we moved 150 yards to the left, which changed the 14th quite a bit, which was always going to be a par three. It just finished up being a, a different par three. But I always say it's a great site for golf because it's on the water, it's unlimited sand, it's, there's lots of space. But it's not great land for golf. It's incredibly choppy. So, you know, Mike and Lucas Michelle, who, you know, Lucas, he's been on your pod, I think, won the mid-amateur a couple of years ago. I mean, Lucas especially has spent all year on a dozer just flattening sand dunes to make it at least playable because it's incredibly choppy, unlike the courses at the National and St Andrews Beach where you just planted the grass and mowed it and built some bunkers and greens. You really have to manipulate the ground to make the golf playable. So we've moved lots of sand to make it so you can actually play golf on it. But you know, the, the trick is to make it look like you haven't moved any sand. So I think when people go there, they won't get any concept of what it was like before we started, which is why the before and after photos are so much fun to look at because people won't believe how crazy some of the land was before we started moving it around so we could play golf on it. You know, I think it's got a lot of really good holes. I, you know, it's going to be a, one of the better courses in Australia. And it needs to be because it's, you know, it's a public course in a – in world terms, a remote place, but it's it's an hour from Sydney and Melbourne, and it's close to Hobart, and it's but it needs to be great for people to want to go and play it. That's why Bamboogle works so well because people go there and they have a great time, and and so much of Richard's business is people 
going back year after year and booking the same weekend, they just go back again. So, so it needs to be the same model as that and work as well as that. I'm curious, the, the, the comparison that I just make, again, just from pictures and seeing the before and afters as well, of a similar site over in New Zealand, which is Terra Edi. I don't know if it's the same kind of pines that were there or the same kind of ground, the same kind of sand, all this stuff that is way above my pay grade. But I'm just curious at all if that model or the success they've had and continue to have, it looks like, with uh, the building of two new courses going on there was kind of in some way a blueprint or a, uh, even more, I guess, co- give you even more confidence to say this 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 project process clearing all this smoothing this land and building and growing fescue grass here is going to work great and it's, people are going to want to come play it I, i'm curious if i'm making a connection at all that this uh, has crossed your guys mind well we i mean matt started long before tyredi was even thought of i mean he, right. he's been going at this for 12 years but i've never been down there mike devries has been there and we spoke about going there and thought we actually don't want to go there what because we don't want to copy what they've done but you're right, the photos look exactly the same. I, I think we can, our limit, we, we, we can build within 50 metres of the high water line. And I think they couldn't go quite as close. But it looks, it looks very similar land. You know, it's rolling sand dunes, covered in pine trees. The irony of Seven Mile Beach was they tore down the indigenous eucalypt forest to plant a plant plantation. And if they'd never taken out the indigenous eucalypts there was no chance he would have got a permit to build the golf course right and, i mean it took matt a long time to get a permit anyway but the only reason we got a permit to build a golf course was that they'd torn down the forest of eucalypts that had been there for forever and planted a lousy cheap fast growing radiator pine crop that they just harvested every year and, and as you come in you know, there were lots of people who didn't want the project to happen because people just don't want golf to happen in, in a lot of places. People who don't play golf don't necessarily like it. As you drive in, there's a sand mine there. So they're mining the dunes for sand. So they couldn't really argue that we were trashing the sand dunes because five minutes down the drive, they were destroying the sand dunes for, for a sand mine. So at least golf was kind of in a way preserving the dunes and, and there was no value to the trees that were on the site. So, you know, golf course was certainly improving it. What has been, uh, you know, we may have touched on it already with the clearing of the land, but if, if you know, what, what would be next on the list, I guess, as far as biggest challenges, if that's the biggest one, what are, what have your big, been your biggest challenges? I know there's been, look like in the past month or so, there's actually been some vandals that have set you guys back out there on this location. Yeah, and you, they come in at, in the middle of the night, there are locked gates, so you can't just go in the driveway and get in, so you, you've got to actually get onto the beach in a four-wheel drive, drive down the beach, come up the sand dunes and come into the back of the golf course. So I mean, it's like you don't have anything better to do at midnight than take your four-wheel drive and spin it over a growing golf course and wreck it. You know, so you know, Mike spent the last two weeks just fixing up the greens they trashed, which is incredibly frustrating, but you know, it, it is what it is. But one of the biggest challenges was actually burning the trees. There were 300 piles of pine trees and the permit let us burn them if, when it was less than 16 degrees, so 65 degrees, when the wind was from, I think, the northeast and after, after 10 o'clock at night. Mm. So, so the guys who were burning them were out there in the middle of the night setting fire to these you know, 300 piles of pine trees. and So, so that took forever to burn the trees, but we, we didn't have to wait till they were all burnt. But you know, there, there were times when Mike was held up because there were, you know, he wanted to work on a hole and there were trees all over it. So, but it got done eventually. 
I'm wondering if you can kind of give us a little bit of a teaser as to what what maybe some features that there are we can look forward to. There aren't many people in the world that have the depth of knowledge that you do about golf courses, the things you've seen, and a blank slate like this. Or you know, I know you've you've got partners, of course, that you're working with. I'm not saying it's just you drawing whatever you want, but the ability to kind of uh, I, I guess on a site like this uh, to really display all of what uh, I think you appreciate about golf course ac- architecture. And I wish I could describe it as articulately as you usually do, but what, what, what can we look forward to? What, what have you drawn inspiration from to say, Hey, this, this green at this course really inspired me to this specific feature and uh, the little details of something that make a, a golf experience that much better. Good question. I, th- I think when we all like in the fashion of modern design and the fashion of the golden age, the fairways are wide. Australia's never had narrow fairways bordered by long grass, which is what the PGA Tour has encouraged, I guess, 30-yard wide fairways and rough down the side. And so we've always had wide fairways in Australia, Royal Melbourne being the widest because it's such a big site. So there's, there's lots of Royal Melbourne there in the sense that it's wide. On every hole, we could have made the strategy. If you drive to one half of the fairway, you can see the green. If you drive to the other half, you can't because you're going over a dune. So we've used that a bit, but we could have done it on literally every long hole on the golf course. So for 14 holes, we could have made that the strategy, which would have got incredibly boring. And if you were a bad golfer, you well, if you couldn't drive it to the right place or figure out where to drive it, you'd have gone there and hated the golf course because every shot was blind. <laughs> but we've used that without overusing it. I think Melbourne's got, the Sandbelt's got the best group of sort of 300 yard holes in the world. There are probably 10 great drivable-ish short par fours that in the in this age when the ball's going so far they're actually more they're the one hole that's more dangerous because you can drive it 30 years ago 40 years ago there were irons off the tees and wedges now guys can drive it they're taking driver and they they can drive it on but they can also get into a lot more trouble so there are, we've got a couple of those that i think are great holes Alec Russell, you guys didn't go to Paraparam, I don't think. You've never been to Paraparam in New Zealand. New Zealand's worth doing. You know, I listened to that pod you just did on Scandinavia, and New Zealand's the one place you could do the, do a very similar trip and find lots of great golf. But Alec Russell, who did the East Course at Royal Melbourne, did essentially three par threes with no bunkers. There were two really short bunkers on the second hole, no bunkers at five, no bunkers at 15. So we've got two par threes with no bunkers. We The, the second hole was a uphill kind of really skyline green really really difficult hole but we started off with a back tee in a front bunker and it was 165 yards uphill and it just looked wildly difficult so in the end the wind blew the sand into the front bunker and that filled in and we just never put it back and we got rid of the back tee so it's now 140 yards to a skyline green which is a really cool little short part three with no bunkers but it's a, and a big green, but don't miss it. So it's a really cool hole, and and it's the it's almost the one shot on the golf course. I think the the, the second shot to the first tee shot from the back left tee at the second are the only two shots on the course where you can't see the water. But you go to the three forward tees, and there's a great view of the water behind it. So, so it's a it's a cool looking. It's the sort of part three people fall in love with because it's just got a great view. But it's a, you know it's also a great hole. Yeah, there are three holes going along the beach. Six, eleven, and sixteen go along the beach. So the strategy at six and eleven is very much down the boundary at St Andrews. The closer you drive to the beach, the better the line. The further, the safer you play. The it's a much more difficult second shot into into those holes. But yeah, it's a 
past 72, it's kind of 7,000 yards. So it's a bit into that trap of, you know, what modern golf is. But, you know, at some point, the elephant in the room is the Australian Open's in Melbourne this year. It's come back to Melbourne after 15 years in Sydney. So it's at Kingston Heath and Victoria. It's a mixed open, men and women, full fields. But it's been 50 years since the Open was in Perth, Brisbane, one off in Adelaide in 98, and, and Hobart. So four of the biggest cities in the country haven't seen the Australian Open for 50 years. And they can't go. I don't think they can go 100 years. They can't go another 50 years without taking the Australian Open back around the country. And it's been hostage to the commercial interest of the sponsors who want it in Melbourne or Sydney. But as I said, the elephant in the room is at one point, I think they're going to play the Australian Open here. So so you can't really build a cool 6,600-yard course because it's just too short. So in the back of our minds, it's like, there's a chance in the next 50 years there's going to be an open here. We need to make it so it's a reasonable length for those guys. But there are lots of tees. It's you know, one of the things that Mike DeVries emphasised was the transitions from green to tees. I doubt there's a hole that's got a more than a 15-yard walk from the green to the tee because the site is so good that when we were routing it, once you found a green you could literally walk 10 yards and find the next great hole. And you just went around for 18 holes, finding one great hole after another. And we had a lot of routings here. The trick was to kind of eliminate, well, to try and find the absolute best routing. And and one of the prerequisites of that was there was no excuse for finding something that wasn't the easiest walking course in the world you, because you could literally step off every green. I mean, you could have played... The old rule where you teed up within two club lengths of the hole and played the next hole pretty much, pretty much you could do, you know, we could have done that. So it's incredibly walkable. So, so it's all those things. It's width, it's walkable, it's great short fours, it's some cool long holes. It's, you know, it, it's a championship length, which is, you know, I kind of hate that cliche, but, you know, in the back of our mind, we've got one day they'll, they're going to play an Australian Open here because they can't not play four of the biggest cities in Australia for a century. And, and take the open there. So at some point that's going to break and, and it's going to move, start moving around the country again, mm. which it needs to. Quick break here to check in with our friends at Whoop, the personalized digital fitness and health coach and official fitness wearable of the PGA and LPGA tours. You can monitor your recovery, your sleep, your training and health with personalized recommendations and coaching feedback with Whoop helps you train smarter, helps you recover faster, sleep better, and now feel healthier with Whoop and their all new Whoop 4.0, the latest, most advanced fitness wearable on the market. It's smaller, smarter. It's designed with biometric tracking, including skin temperature, blood oxygen, and more. It features a Smart Alarm, it's designed to make to wake you up feeling refreshed, ready to take on the day. And it was designed with their Anywhere technology, so you can wear it uh, with their Whoop Body Sensor, enhanced technical garments, boxers, shorts, compression tops, bralettes, leggings, and more. You can just remove the device from the band, slide it on the garment of your choice, and you're discreetly tracking your daily activity with Whoop. I absolutely love my Whoop. been using it for several years. It has helped me make better decisions. And the all-new waterproof device is free when you sign up for a Whoop 4.0 membership. For any members, if you have six months left of membership on your account, you can upgrade now. Get the 4.0 for free. And right now, Whoop is offering 15% off when you use code NLU15 at checkout. Go to whoop.com, W-H-O-O-P.com, enter code NLU15 at checkout to save 15%. 
Let's go back to Mike Clayton. Well, that I honestly is something I haven't really thought about as far as an advantage of building courses these days is being able to factor in modern technology in the walk, actually, you know, and making sure that you don't have to walk backwards to tee boxes uh, and things like that, which is, I think, uh, you know, people are looking for ways to speed up the game of golf. That's one right there. It's that's that, you know, that sounds like it doesn't take that long, but it does. And it, it reroutes maintenance. It does all kinds of things that just make make golf slow down. And I, I know we want to get into some of that here eventually, which uh, I, I wanted to pick your brain on this. You you said uh, wide fairways, big feature of Australian golf, big features of Seven Mile Beach. A lot of people, when they hear wide fairways, they think easier. So how do you, as a golf course designer and architect, how do you challenge people through the use of wide fairways? Why does that add to a golfing experience? Yet at the same time, how can you uh, provide a challenge? You mentioned some of the things about, you know, hiding views from certain parts of the fairway, but I'm just wondering kind of what your philosophy is or how you would tell someone like, hey, wider doesn't necessarily mean easier. It's probably going to be more fun, but it doesn't necessarily mean easier. Well, Royal Melbourne's the the great answer to that question. I mean, Royal Melbourne's a it's an easy driving course if you just want to hit the fairway, but you never fix a pitch mark at Royal Melbourne. There are no pitch marks in the greens there anymore. They're so hard now that... So if you're playing from the wrong side of the fairway, it's so much more difficult to get the ball close to the hole. It's difficult to get the ball close to the hole anyway because on a soft, windless golf course from 170 yards, you've got to hit a 7-iron or whatever you hit. You've got to hit a, the same shot you hit in the practice fairway that lands by the hole and stops. And if you hit a good shot, it's inside 10 feet. Royal Melbourne, if you, you've got to factor in the wind, the bounce, the speed of the greens, it's incredibly difficult to hit a 170-yard shot within 10 feet of the hole, incredibly difficult. So it has the advantage of firm greens, which are going to be a feature of Seven Mile Beach, not as fast because it's fescue versus bent, and, and the wind. So whilst Bamboogle is crazy windy because it's in a crazy windy part of northern Tasmania, this site is, apart from this time of the year, which is, you know, it's windy in the spring. For a site on the sea, it's nowhere near as windy as you might think it is, but there's always going to be wind. So the test of the driver is to flight the ball through the wind and use the wind. So when it's downwind, you know, to use the wind to, you know, to sail the ball through the air, hold it in the crosswinds, rip it through the wind when you're into the wind. It's not a test of straight driving, but it's a test of accurate driving to a point that leaves you the easiest approach shot or, or the or the approach shot where you can see the green versus where you can't and flooding it through the wind properly so driving is which is the test at st andrews really i mean it's gotten narrower over the years because they've grown rough on it but you know essentially that's a wide golf course to drive the ball on but you've got to flight the ball through the wind and you've got to figure out for yourself where to hit it you're not told where to hit the ball which is the most depressing part of you know the US Open is the US Open and we've seen great US US Opens and they're fun to watch because you're watching the best players in the world choke and hit bad shots and but you're pretty much told where to hit the ball you must hit it here you know if if you don't hit it here it's a one shot penalty or it's a, a half a shot penalty or whatever it is which is not the case on courses that are wider you know you've got to figure out for yourself where to go but for the crooked driver you know they they're not going to lose as many balls They've got some leeway. They can, and if they're smart, they'll, with multiple plays of the golf course, they'll figure out which side of the hole is better to play towards. Well, and that's where a few things that everything, all the elements you're talking about lead to great fun for me playing golf is one, when I got to stand on a tee and I got to worry about my driver stopping, I got to worry about a bunker running out at a certain 
curvature of the fairway or a pot bunker that you know sits left center of this uh, fairway that's 270 out that is a factor here because that's where the best angle is into that green if the green is firm. All those factors you talked about with the shape of the green, the wind, the firmness of the greens, that is what the challenge of the golf hole is. So it can kind of be quote unquote easy off the tee, yet you're just kind of you're you're uh, in a way shaping the degree of challenge for the next shot. When people say it's a second shot golf course, that's kind of how I grow to understand that definition. And it's just not something that's super easy to replicate. I always use Hazeltine as my example here because Hazeltine is, you know, long par fours, bunkers on both sides, rough, and fairways are shaped, you know, very predictably. And it's not like you can just take these principles and copy them right over if you don't have the same soil. So much of it comes down to soil and green design and wind design and all that stuff. And uh, I don't know if I have a question on top of that other than uh, I, I just I, I love talking about that and I absolutely love playing courses like that. Well, well and, and golf is, and we're used, so used to it in Australia because we, we play on, well, certainly in Melbourne, you play on firm ground where the ball bounces. So, so much of the fun of the game is what the ball does after it hits the ground. We play a fun game at Bamboogle where apart from the seventh hole where you kind of have to hit the ball on the ground because it's a 120-yard par three and you can't run it up, we play a fun game where you're not allowed to land the ball on the green. You have to land it short of the green and bounce it on. And it's so much, and it's so much fun playing shots like that that, that you just, that they're shots that, you just don't see anymore because it's so much more of an aerial game. And for good players, the ball goes so far that so many of the holes are short irons. But when you're back playing longer clubs and trying to run two and three and four irons into the green, the game is so much more interesting and so much more fun to play. Let's go to that now because we've, like I said, we've probably not talked equipment on this podcast since February or March. Just we've been, so we've had two hour long podcasts every week because I think there's something else going on in the golf world that I think we could also talk with you about some of the back end. But at the same time, it's almost has felt like it's been on the back burner in terms of the evolution of the distance debate discussion or equipment changes from the USGA and RNA. Um, I want to, I want to kind of start at, square one here I'll ask the question first and then ask kind of the I'll go ahead and ask the follow-up to it now but do you believe the ball goes too far and I, I want to preface this already with one, one I know what your answer to this is but also that doesn't necessarily mean we're only referring to ball technology here but also there's just a lot of people out there that don't want to hear any of that or don't agree with that or just don't want to have the discussion but so to many of this to many people this will fall on deaf ears but what is your go-to explanation for people that have not seen the light I would consider myself a convert in this I did not believe this way in 2014 but I've been able to see around the corner and understand exactly what the issues are but how would you explain it to someone that hasn't seen the light yet not to say they have to believe this I'm not forcing them into it but I'm just curious how you would have that conversation okay well the first point is the ball doesn't go far enough for most people who play if they could make a ball that went 50 yards further for the average woman player who hits the ball 130 yards in the air, how much better would the game, how much more fun would the game be for them and for, and for old guys? And so for a lot of people who play golf, the ball goes the exact right distance. For a lot of people who play, it doesn't go far enough. But for the best players, it goes way too far. And my argument is because, and it's, the, the problem with this is, is, is this, <clears throat> Australia doesn't have a voice in a debate. It, it's such an American centric debate but all our great courses Royal Melbourne Kingston Heath the Australian Royal Sydney Royal Queensland Royal Lake Karen up all the great courses for the best players play so short now 
because one, the ball runs, and two, it goes so far. So we played a Victoria the other day in, in a little tournament we have. Pretty much every par four for those guys, the guys who play well, is a, is a drive and a wedge or a drive and a short iron, drive and a niner. So the great courses that were built to challenge the, great, the best players in the country, same in America, same in Britain, to hold the important championships, don't play remotely close to the way their architects envisage them playing. So if Mackenzie came back now and saw Tiger Woods hit a drive and a nine iron to the second at Royal Melbourne, he'd think, well, this was a, I built this as a 265-yard, long two-shot par five. So it wasn't a three-shot hole, but even, even back in 926, you had to rip a drive and rip a three, which would run it onto the green. And then since then, they've moved the tee back 40 yards, and it's a drive and a seven iron. Now, I think McKenzie would get, okay, it's, t- it's gone from a drive and a, it's gone from 465 yards and a drive of three wood to 490 yards. I think he'd be okay with it being a drive and a four iron, but not a drive and a nine iron, and not all those great par fours he built there being drives and wedges. Not all the great par fours at St Andrews and wherever you want to go, Sunningdale and all the great courses, Marion, turning into holes that the great architects who built them wouldn't remotely recognise. I think they'd be fine with, as I said, three woods turning into four irons, but not three woods turning into nine irons. And that's kind of a generalisation, but it's largely true that because the ball goes so far, how do you build a, a long par four anymore? How do you build a hole? I was listening to a podcast, I think, it was a, I think it was Andy Johnson talking about Andrew Green saying he's building 280-yard par threes now because that's the only way to test a three-wood or a long line. And that's, you know, that was a legitimate test. The 16th at Carnoustie and you know, the great long par threes in the game, the third at Marion, fourth at Augusta off the back tee. The, one of the great tests in golf was a three-wood or a long iron into a par three. Now, he's right. How do you do that anymore unless you build a hole that's 280 yards long? Which and who wants to play that? Who wants to build it? Who wants to play it? You know, the average golfer doesn't want to play 280 yard. They want to play 280 yard par fours. And perhaps a trick is to, you know, the 11th at LA Country Club where there was a course within the course and, and you can make it a really interesting two shot hole for the average player while still making it a par three for a, for a tournament. That, that's kind of an architecture trick that if you get the right bit of land, you can maybe do that. Plus, I think the one thing that, the amateurs who run the game, I, I suspect they've never thought of it. I see so many really good young kids playing golf now. Techniques are better because they've grown up with a phone so, so, so they can see their swing for... There's an article in a, in a Golf Australia magazine this month. Nick Price says, when I first saw my swing, I almost threw up. And it was the same of... I was the same. Was our generation, we never saw our swings. We didn't know what we did. So when we first saw pictures, it was like, my God, I do that. It's horrible. Jose Mariela Fabel had a similar reaction. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this generation have grown up with swings on their phone. They've seen how Tiger swings. They've seen Louis Ustaz and they've seen, they've seen the great swings and they're great imitators. As, as all kids are great imitators. So there's so many great techniques out there now. The problem with the equipment, I think, is that there's now thousands of kids around the world who all want to be golf pros. And some of them are going to make it, but most of them aren't. And the more, the more difficult you make the equipment to use for those guys, the more difficult the driver is to use, the more difficult it is to flight the ball through the wind, the more difficult it is to drive the ball 300 yards. The more you can differentiate the kids with real talent before they turn pro and 
you know, enforce a life of roads and shitty motels and planning mini tours and losing their money and, you know, go and get a proper job in a real life rather than try to chase this impossible dream. And, you know, I was lucky enough to play decently as a pro and make a living at it and I really enjoyed it. But, you know, I, I think that the equipment has become, the drivers become such an easy club to use. There, there are thousands of kids around the world who can drive the ball within wedge distance of the green and shoot great scores. So they all think they're good enough to be pros and, 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 and they are, they're tremendous players. But the biggest favour the RNA and the USJ could do, the thousands of kids who all want to be golf pros, is make the equipment more difficult to use. So in my era, Greg Seve, who was a great driver despite what people think, Nicholas, obviously, Watson, the great players could flight the ball through the wind with a steel-shafted persimmon driver with a bladder ball. So the great players could... They were just a step ahead because they were so much better with one club because it was really difficult to use that club in the wind with that ball. Now it's it's way easier to, to well you don't have to you know you, to hammer the modern ball through the wind with a graphite shafted head with a frying you know with a frying pan head on it is not particularly difficult relative to what it was forty years ago. So the best players in the world always won the Open. Trevino, Weisskopf when he was playing great, Miller when he had a, was having a great year, Nicholas was always there, Watson, Norman, Woozy, who, who never won it but played well in the Open because they could flight that thing through the wind, difficult ball, difficult head, difficult shaft in terms of it was heavy, head, head, was, head was small. That was one club where the best players could break out of the pack. And, and the next lot of clubs was, were the long irons, those blade, the blade one and two and three irons. Which you know, I've got, I can still see Savvy and Greg and hitting those towering one irons that the rest of us couldn't hit. So they could break out of the pack just with their skills with the long clubs. You drag the ball back fifty yards, make it more difficult to drive it in the wind, and you can get away from this. this, this thousands of kids who all think they're good enough to play on the pro tour when there are only. Well, there are one hundred and fifty spots on the PGA Tour, and there are hundred spots on the European Tour, and. There are 125 spots on the web doc, on the Corn Ferry Tour, and there aren't that many jobs. Well, and it's also I've been trying to yell this from the mountaintops, and you're 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 saying it, I think, in a different way. And that a huge element from of this perspective is the how easy it is to hit it far. And I get that there's all the data out there that shows, hey, track man optimization. You know, people understand ball flights better. They're more fit. You know, they're able to create more swing speed on it. And what I'm saying is they're heavily, and I believe you're saying the same, they're heavily, heavily incentivized to follow that route because relatively speaking, the risk of whaling on the ball is low. And so the it, it, it far out, the benefit of getting the ball further down there far outweighs the risk of it going way offline, which in, in your era was a totally different question of can you hit the screws of this club and make it like if you whale on one, you better hit it on the center. If not, it is going to fly ugly, really ugly, even for the top level of the game. And now it is just, hey, send it, send it, send it, send it, send it. And it now it's it's risky to not go down that obvious path to improvement of hitting it far. We haven't really even seen the trickle down effect of all of this stuff, uh, you know, all of this impact so far to this point, and it just is going to lead to, and it already has lead to less and less diverse playing styles. Is 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 how I would define it. Yeah, a friend of mine sent me this note the other day, and I don't think he'd mind you mind me sharing it. I had lunch with Bryson about a year ago. I see him occasionally at Dallas National. We talk about all things golf. He knows my game quite well. We fit balls together, but I digress. He said if he and I played a ball that spins, the equivalent to the old ball, the old ballada ball, 
and he swings with as much effort and speed as he does with a current ball, I win eight out of ten times. You know, they're playing a handicap match. His reasoning, at my swing speed, that spin, I hit four to, four to five balls out of play, and I don't think I can spot you eight to ten shots. So there's one of the best players in the world saying, I, I would play completely differently with a different ball. I, I would, I, I'd hit the ball four to, five t- four to five times around. I'm hitting it where I can't play it. So the, the way the game is – so the equipment's fundamentally changed the way they play, and it's fundamentally changed the way golf courses play. And you can't – we don't want to go and – you know, there are the guys that say, well, just go and build 48,000-yard golf courses. Well, no one's – who's building – who wants to build a golf course for one tournament a year? It's stretching out the dip, that really that difference between the pro game. Where are these pro golf courses going to go? And it tends to go to more boring golf courses, I would say. The the fact that some of some of the courses you've named here are not suitable for the pro game, and you get and that's where like you gave very specific reasons as to why they're not suitable for the pro game anymore. The driver wedge test is not what makes Kingston Heath a great golf course. Like a, it, it's not. It's the it's the, the variety of skills put on. Uh, put to test and you know I, I hear people just say like hey things evolve man like you got to ke- keep up with the times here man and it's like there is an element of sustainability to it all the most simple definition and it's probably it's not the technical definition of sustainability but somebody said this to me once like hey can you do this thing forever this one thing can you do it forever and if the answer is no that's by definition something that's unsustainable and it's like yeah the ball can't keep going further and you can't keep building golf courses and going back tees and and doing all that, and uh, it, and I get that, yeah, I, I feel like I'm arguing with myself some of these times, but it's not a, uh, it, the, sp- the specific point of this is is a variety of skills that should be tested on a golf course, and if you make everything driver wedge, it is inherently makes the game left, less interesting, right? And I think that's a hard, it's a hard point to make. It's like, what should the pro, can I promise the pro game is going to go way up in ratings, if they dial everything back, I don't know if I can, but like I know for like hardcore golf fans, this would make a pretty big difference in watching the game. Is that enough to move the needle and inspire the change? And is that the question like that the USGA and RNA are trying to figure out right now? How worth it is it to try to put some of the toothpaste back in the tube to answer these questions that, hey, these two golf sickos that are talking right now, everything they're saying to me makes a lot of sense. But, hey, we're making a different decision here. Like Our, our decision inputs are different here. How do you see that playing out? Well, I, you know, I think you have to bifurcate it for a start. Although, you know, I, I, I go two ways on that. You, you bifurcate the game, so they should make a ball, if they can, make a ball that goes further for women and old guys. It would be great if, if they can make a, you know, take all the limits off and make a ball that goes 30 yards further, pull it back 10% for the pros. Because it's such an American-centric debate, what almost every American doesn't understand is that we rolled the ball back in Australia and the rest of the world 40 years ago when we adopted the big ball. We lost 25 yards in distance. No one complained. No one complained about it, really. Peter Thompson was, why are we blindly following America? Which was a good point, but changing to the big ball fostered the great generation of international players because they were never going to be able to compete in America while they were changing back and forth from the big ball to the small ball. So Greg would come back to Australia, David Graham, they would come back and play with the big ball in Australia, but they were giving up 25 yards in distance. So inevitably they started swapping back and forth, and that never worked. So we've been through a rollback. 
and no, the evidence was no one gave up golf, no one complained. The golf was just as much fun. You know, to me, it's you know the the, the manufacturing lobby is a bit like the cigarette lobby or the or whatever lobby it is. They're always going to lobby for for their for their own point of view and and what's best for their business, not what's necessarily best for the game. I mean, the cigarette companies weren't lobbying for what was best for the health of Americans and Australians. They're arguing for what was best for their bottom line, when they well knew that cigarettes were were killing people. But that's not what they're going to argue. So the government in in that case, the administration in the case of golf, they've got to look past the self interest of the manufacturers and what what's best for the game. Clearly, I think rolling the ball back and respecting the way the great architects wanted their golf courses to play and the great minds of the past, you know, Nicholas and Jones and how the, how, what they saw as the test of golf. You know, Hogan's one iron in, into the last at Merion was, you know, and now they've got a tee way back, so Justin Rose was hitting four iron. But point remains that, you know, that's one of the great shots in golf was Hogan's one iron to a par four green. Now, where is a par four anywhere in the world that's a drive on a one iron unless it's into a 50-mile-an-hour wind? That doesn't exist anymore. So I, th- I think people would find the game would be way more interesting to watch. For the best players, it would be way more interesting to play. And the silence of the players is bought by the manufacturers who te- I know they tell them, stop talking about this. This is not what we want you guys talking about. So none of them... Comment on it, but if you're a Rory McIlroy or you're one of the, or Bryson DeChambeau or Dustin Johnson or, who, or whoever, one of the best players in the world, I assume if you said to them, "Would you like the equipment more difficult to use?" The best players, by definition, want the want the equipment to be more difficult to use because they've got a bigger advantage. Which was why Nicholas had the advantage and why Jones had the advantage because they were the better players. So the more difficult the equipment was to use, the more advantage they had. That's the scary thing about Tiger is if if the if the ball didn't change right around the time that he hit his peak like that, who knows how much he would have been able to separate himself. I mean, it was I mean, when he he won it at Augusta in 97, that was with all old equipment for for pretty much everyone. He wins by 12. And then by the time uh, he was using the uh, he was no longer using a wound ball, I believe, at Pebble and he wins that by 15 and eventually people catch up and he won a ton of majors after that, but the margins of victory thinned out quite a bit right and that that's that's to your point of like the the ability to truly separate now pretty much comes down to if you have an insanely hot putter right because there's a bunch of dudes that hit it not exactly the same but it's just really hard to be that much better than the second best guy yeah i think we appreciated tiger at the time we did didn't we but i don't you know i don't think we realized how great he was perhaps we did but you know, I think people are, people are going to look back in 50 years and say, well, you saw Tiger Woods play golf, which was a bit like you saw – I mean, for me, you would love to see Bobby Jones play. I saw, I saw Snead play, but I never saw Hogan play. And, you know, you just wish you could see those guys play at their best. And it was – I saw Tiger play. I saw Tiger play at Hoylake in that 2006 Open, which was phenomenal. I saw him win the last round of Bethpage, 2002, which was – he shot 72, but the ball striking was off the charts great. And I saw him play at Royal Melbourne in the President's Cup when he beat Answer on the like, two and one or three and two. But it was a, it was a he was clearly the best player there, which which I, I guess ties into the debate was when you've got a great course like Royal Melbourne, even though it played so short for him, he was clearly the best player there. He, he charted his way around that golf course so cleverly and brilliantly, and he just hit every shot in the singles was just exactly the, the right shot to hit. 
and there was no one. I mean, though, of course, there were a lot of fantastic players there, but on that golf course, he showed why he was the best player in the world. 15 years or 10 years after he was Pebble Beach and St Andrews in 2000, he was, it, was, it, was, it was 20 years later, and he was still the best player there. And you could just see it activate something within him almost. Like yeah. his process slowed down a little bit. He's thinking his way through it. That was one of the great golf tournaments of the decade, honestly. Golf events of the decade was that President's Cup at, at Royal Melbourne. And uh, so, yeah, what, what, what is going on now with the, with the USGA and RNA these days? There was a, a update to their distance report, I believe, in February or, or March this past year. Do you get the sense that things are ready to change? Are... are are going to change and what's the timeline looking like for that? Uh, and how, how, uh, how, how close are you keeping your finger on the pulse of this one? I, mean, I don't have any insight, but I, but I suspect I'm, if I was betting, I, I would bet that, that they're going to roll the ball back. And what does that mean? For the best players, you take it back 10%. The evidence of Australia and the rest of the world was they didn't bifurcate it when they went back to the, when, when they swapped from the small ball to the big ball. So everyone lost distance. And no one complained. So the question is, do you just do that? And the, and the average player loses 10 yards or whatever he loses. And for me, I drive it 250 yards maybe on a good day now. You know, I'm not going to lose 25 yards. Bryson DeChambeau is, but I'm not going to lose. Because I, I didn't pick that up, so I'm not going to lose it. Or, or, you, or you just let us play with the, the ball the way it is and you create a ball for top tournament play, which was what happened in Australia in the late 70s and early 80s when I won the Australian Amateur in 1978, which was not the point of the story, but I was the only guy in the field using the big ball because I'd figured out that, well, if I want to be a golf pro, I'm going to have to learn to play with this ball. So in mid-77, I threw all my small balls out and started playing with the big ball. And within two years, all of the best players, in the, all the best amateurs in Australia were, were, were playing with the big ball so you know, people say what torments do you what torments become rolled back ball torments and which ones don't well it sorted itself out within a couple of years on the amateur circuit the Australian amateur was mandated big ball tournament all the big amateur tournaments most of the guys were playing a big ball it just kind of sorted itself out because amateur golf at that level is populated by kids who want to be pros so if they want to be a pro you have to play with a pro ball so that'll sort itself out really quickly, I think. Yeah, that's that's the big outstanding question for me too, and I don't have a great answer for it because I think I'm in favor of bifurcation. But yeah, mid-am tournaments, do you play a bifurc- you know, a rollback ball that you, they play in the pros, or do you play uh, you know, the amateur fun ball? That's that's where the line needs to be drawn. But I still think like an awkwardness around that is better than the alternative. Uh, you know, that's what I see this too with like the changes that are coming to the PGA tour and saying, well, look at the sm- the sponsors of the small events. And I, I just, uh, to that, I'm screaming, like you have to throw out the status quo or you have to like stop anchoring yourself to what is current in this. And that know that if you upset the apple cart, yes, there's going to be someone to pay somewhere to pay for this, but that, you have to weigh the pros and cons of doing that. And I think like if the big question becomes who uses the rollback ball and who doesn't, I think that's a better alternative than like, Hey, this is like not really not sustainable. And golf is getting kind of dumbed down to just a couple, couple skills. And I, I think my perspective on this changed right around 2019 into 2020, we were working like on a, a documentary where I was going to try to practice and get as good as I could at golf and see uh, if I could qualify for the U.S. Open, we were going to film the whole thing. COVID threw a big curveball at that, but I was playing five, six times a week 
way too much golf. And I started to play really good golf because I think I figured out that like, Hey, I don't, I'm only going to hit so many mid irons, you know, in a round, let's figure out how to hit, you know, I use a low spin ball. We're going to drive it to around this spot and we're going to hit nine irons and in down. And I'm going to master like the 150 shot, the 160 shot. And I kind of did. And my scores dropped astronomically. And it was kind of like, that was a light bulb going off for me of kind of like, Oh, there's kind of a, I don't want to say a cheat code here, but it's kind of a, uh, I know exactly what I need to work on to improve by a lot. And, um, uh, yeah, that was, that was an interesting kind of, kind of thing to go for. Cause I think it's, God, there's a million different ways we can go with this and, and a million different reasons why, you know, the downstream effects this all has, but the scale of the game is a big one to me. Like the answer to everything isn't just mo- like playing a, a hole with a rolled back ball at 420. is not the same as playing, you know, ball that goes forever at 470. And like the, the cone of how you hit shots, it's different. It's a totally different game and it puts that much more emphasis on the driving skill. It really does it. That light bulb went off for me there when I played the back tees at Pine Valley and I like could barely see the fairway on some of these holes. They're so far back there, and I'm a pretty errant driver. And when you take my cone from way back when the fairway starts 200 yards away from me, it all of a sudden brings a different element into the to the uh, the golf hole than than that. Again, I don't have a question on that. <laughs> There's some things I need to get off my chest. And the other point I continually make is the freak in one generation, all the way back to Ted Ray in the turn of the last century. The freak in one generation has always become the norm in the next. Through Jimmy Thompson, Sam Snead, Nicholas, Daly, Davis Love probably, Bryson now, they've always become the norm in the next generation. So you know that there are a bunch of 13-year-old kids out there looking at Bryson and Dustin and and they're, they're figuring out how to hit the ball 350 yards. They'll figure it out. It's all about speed and strength and the game isn't sustainable when it's populated by, I mean, now it's at 300 to 320-yard drivers. When it's 330 to 350, scales the world. The, the game is so out of scale. When a 500-yard hole, which was formerly a long two-shot hole, becomes a drive and a short iron, the scale is completely out. And if, and if McKenzie and Jones came back, they would they'd be horrible at what's gone on and, you know, and the question for the administration is how much respect do you have for those guys do you have any respect for the way Bobby Jones thought the game should be played and do you have any respect for the courses at Alice McKenzie and Donald Ross and Tilling Hast and Tom Simpson and Harry Colt do you have any respect for what they did and the courses they designed and how they wanted those courses to be played and if you have no respect for them and don't care that the first at Sayndales are driving a wedge now then it doesn't matter. But if you respect the way the great minds of the past thought about the game and they wanted it to play, then you've got to do something about the ball. And driving should be, as it was you know, in my generation, with Nicholas and Norman, as I, all those guys, driving should be the ultimate test. of, And, and, and the ultimate test is driving on, on a links course, which is why the Open's always been the great differentiator. It was why the Open always found the best player in the world because you had to drive that ballada ball through the wind and it took a lot of skill to do that. And the guys, the guys who dominated that tournament in the 60s and 70s and 80s were, were always the best drivers of the golf ball, always the guys who could rip the ball through the wind. And just so we're given enough credit to to all aspects of this too, I, I'm at least of the stance that the driver head size is too big or the sweet spots are too big. I don't know enough about the details, but I know 
it's it's giving permission for to, for guys to wail on it as well. So I don't know if rolling the distance back in, adding spin to the ball addresses that. I really don't, or if it's a little bit from each of those pieces to say, hey, let's let's make this just a little more a little more uh, challenging to do it. But yeah, I mean, I mean, the great ball drop was losing the case, the the pin case. That was the the scary moment for the administration was, we don't want to take these manufacturers on because it's going to cost us a whole bunch of money. But it's hard to believe they were arguing about an infinitesimal measurement on a groove when years later they let the driver head size almost double. <laughs> How did you let that happen? You, you, know, you, are, you, you spent fortunes in a court arguing about an eighth of an inch on a groove or whatever it was, yet you let the driver go from the size of a standard persimmon driver to what it is now. I mean, how did you let that happen? Surely you can see what was going to happen. Or, or, or one of the results of that happening was that guys are going to start swinging the thing a lot harder than they do now. And, of course, that's what happened. Well, and it doesn't feel ridiculous to pick up a 460cc driver when you do it every day, but the couple rounds I've played with either persimmons or hickories or something like that, the second you put the other one back in your hand, you're like, what? wait a second here. How do we, how do we come this far? But... Listen, I know you got a lot going on here, but we, we we can't let you out here without talking about some of the uh, some of the changes that have gone on in the golf world this past year. But in particular, wanted to get uh, an Australian's view on this because I uh, we've seen several Australian players uh, leave the PGA Tour and DP World Tour um, for for live. And I'm, I'm I'm wondering just to set the listener. I know you you've documented your takes on this in a lot of different places, but for listeners' sake, what, what's your overall reaction to the uh, the shakeup in the professional game this past year? Well, it's a, it's been the biggest topic of obviously. Um, I think the average Australian golf fan is excited about Live because they get to see the best players in the world play here. So they're going to play in Adelaide, I think, in April. Sounds like there's going to be an Asian tour event mixed in with it the week before. So Australians are generally excited about the fact they're going to see the best players in the world play here. The thing that kind of annoys me is that People think the World Tour is Greg Norman's idea. It was Peter Thompson's idea. Peter Thompson was writing about this in the 60s. And he not only wrote about it and spoke about it, he one year passed up an exemption to Augusta to play in the Indian Open. So he essentially started the Asian Tour. He was a big part of promoting the game in Japan, played in Europe and Britain when he was the best non-American player in the world. He came back and played in Australia every year for no appearance. He never took any appearance money. So that is, as much as I hate the phrase, growing the game, that's what you do to nurture the game and grow the game outside of America. And Thompson recognised that the game needed that because there weren't enough jobs in America. There weren't enough jobs for all the people who wanted to be pro golfers. There weren't enough jobs in the world. So he set about promoting the game around the world. And he did an amazing job at it. And, of course, there are lots of other players who contributed to that, but Bobby Locke and Tony Jack and the, the, the great worldwide players. So this notion that Greg's created the World Tour and the World Tour was his idea is completely wrong. And this is for 48 players. It's not for... Thompson was talking about tournaments that had... There were fields of 100, or 144 fields that gave everyone a chance to play. So let's dissuade ourselves of the notion that the World Tour was Greg's idea. The other, the one reason Australians are angry with America is that the wraparound tour stopped our best players coming home to play our tour and it largely killed off our tour. We, don't, we really don't have a tour anymore. We've got a bunch of small 
$250,000 tournaments that have been cobbled together and the PGA and the Open. We've got two really good tournaments. But even there, they're, they're playing for a million and a half dollars or two million dollars, whatever it is. Not, in, in world terms, not that much. So, so the wraparound tour stopped all our best players coming home at the end of the year. So our, our tour kind of died because of that. You know, there's no love for the PGA Tour in Australia because, and it's not their job to care about the rest of the world. But the wraparound tour killed off our tour. It really hurt the big tournaments in Japan. Europe spreading out into the early part of the year and the later part of the year. They're better players coming down to Australia. But that's a, it's really a small part of, of the debate, really. You know, is you can talk about Saudi Arabia and the, and the human rights thing, and they're, they're appalling at that. And should they be taking their money? Probably not, would be my view, but it is what it is. But this notion that, you know, Greg's a great businessman. I mean, Greg's run some incredibly successful businesses, but I don't think you get any points for running a great business when a sovereign wealth fund gives you an unlimited budget. Like, I could, I could start up any number of great businesses if someone gave me an unlimited budget. And you didn't need a return on it. For, I mean, and, they, and, and you needed no return on it. They claim they need a return on it, but that that would that's specifically to you know if you can't say the quiet part out loud that this is one big sports washing activity. Yeah, so. yeah. So it is what it is. As someone who doesn't really have a dog in the fight, you know, it's fascinating to watch the politics play out, and it's fascinating to see what's going to happen over the next few years. I mean, they keep saying that you know there there are another bunch of guys about to sign up with them. Perhaps there are, perhaps there aren't. The Cameron Smith debate to me was interesting. My take would be we all thought Jeff Ogilvie and Adam Scott were more than one major guys, but they turned into one major guys. Cameron Smith is a tremendous player who's had a great year. Brilliant year, really. On the players, tournament champion, the tournament champions and the British Open, an amazing year. You know, the question is for him, is he a one major guy? Or is he a model major guy? Now, the unanswerable question is, if someone said to him, Cameron, you can stay on the PGA Tour and I'll guarantee you win three or four majors because you're playing against the best players in the world, you're staying sharp, you're free of the distraction of all the live stuff, or you can go and sign up for $100 million plus, but you're only going to win one major. That's going to be it. You're a one major guy. What does he do? Now, $100 million is a lot of money. It sets up his family. Not that ge this generational wealth thing is, I'm sure you can read books about all the problems of generational wealth. It can be a terrible thing to have generational wealth, but it's a lot of money. Do you swap potentially two or three or four more majors for the $100 million? For me, there's only one answer to that question. Of course you don't. You take the Masters and the US Open and you sit down when you're 50 years old and say, that was a pretty substantial career. Or do you become a one major guy and take the money? He, he still might win. And I'm sure it's the decision he's made in his head that I still think I can win major championships playing the live tour. And that's the, that's the unanswered question is how competitive are those guys going to be playing 14 times a year in no cut, no pressure events? And you can say there's pressure for the money, but what's Dustin Johnson made this year? $35 million? On top no of the upfront money, which is... yeah. yeah. Sanity. <laughs> there's no there's no pressure not, not relative to major pressure so how, how competitive do you stay they're more than exhibitions but there's not the pressure of 
Well, and I, I'm asking you maybe to speak for, for more people than, than just yourself here. And I, I can certainly understand why an alternative to the status quo, the PGA Tour dominance being the status quo yeah, here, absolutely. why that would be appealing for Australians, any alternative. My question, I guess, is do you think live is it, right? Because I have long clamored for an alternative to the PGA Tour and what they provide from an entertainment standpoint. And I have firmly planted my stake in that I do not think live is that for, for many different reasons. You can put moral issues aside. Like I just don't think this is the answer. B- main thing being they're not going to get everyone because of who they are and we're going to get a fractured golf world. So that's, that's my question is, is, you know, there are, seems to be a lot of people, a fair amount of people, I should say that are out there for an alternative and are desperate enough for one that they've convinced themselves that live is it. So in your perspective and, and what do you think for on behalf of Australian fans is, is live going to be the answer on that entertainment front? Well, no, no, it's not because there aren't enough players in it and there aren't enough tournaments, but the alternative is a great world tour, what Thompson wanted. And it's the tiger effect. I mean, there was the Seve generation created great tournaments outside of the United States in the 1980s because Seve, Faldo, Langelaar, Wisdom, Nick Price for a short period and Greg when they played in Europe. There were, the Australian PGA was a great tournament. The Australian Open was a great tournament. The Tahoe Masters and the Dunlop Phoenix near Cassio were great tournaments in Japan. There were great tournaments outside of America. But the, but the Tiger Woods, yeah, Tiger was such a game-changing person, both the way he played the game. When the money exploded in America, the generation following Seve's generation, Westwood, Poulter, Darren Clark to a lesser extent, McElroy obviously, Luke Donald, decided that, and they were right, because all the money flowed to America. And why would you play in Europe for what they were playing for in Europe when, you could, when you're one of the best players in the world? And you could play for so much more money in America. I mean, the money went nuts when Tiger came out and the purses exploded. So inevitably, the game, the, the, the hub of the professional game, it was always in the United States, really. But it's, you know, it, it gravitated to America. They dragged all the best players from around the world to America. Matsuyama, all the best, Adam Scott, all the best Australians, Jeff Ogilvy, they all went to America. And it kind of diminished the European tour, certainly diminished the Japanese and the Australian tour. But the alternative for the PGA Tour is a great world tour. And if Greg was promoting, let's go and create 45, or, or, well, 40, 45 is too many. Golf needs an off-season. These tournaments at the end of the year in America, I mean, who watched that thing last week in Bermuda? I mean, no, no one cares who wins that tournament. No, one, no one's watching it. What it needs is a great circuit outside of the United States where you play around the world. You play what Thompson envisaged a great Japan Open, a great New Zealand Open, a great South African Open, a great swing through the Middle East, a great swing through the European summer. It would be an amazing circuit. So if that was what Liv was trying to create, then that would be the best thing for golf ever. And that's why I think what golf needs. Golf doesn't need a diminished European tour where their best 10 players on the main list go and play on the PGA Tour the next year. How's that good for the European tour? And the game needs to be vibrant outside of of America that means creating a great world tour and I, and I and it was a chance missed and it wasn't their fault because you can't blame 25 year old men for even thinking about it but if you'd said if someone had said to Seve and Greg and Nick Price and that generation we're going to create a great world tour we're going to play for the equivalent prize money as America we're going to go around the world and promote the game in our own countries we're going to play in each other's countries and create a great world tour that would be the best tour in the world now 
because it would have had 40 years start. And you, and you emphasize playing great golf courses. You emphasize going to cities that love golf, that want to see the best players in the world playing every year. But we've kind of done the opposite. And Liv's sort of a quarter of the way there, but it's not really. But it's why people are excited about it coming to Adelaide next year because they get to watch Dustin Johnson and, 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 and I, I was going to say Adam Scott, and I have no insight into what he's doing. <laughs> Cameron no, Smith. Oh, Rivers. You know, <laughs> Bryson DeChambeau. You know, you get to watch some of the best players in the world playing, our, playing some of our best courses. A big thing for me is the light bulb a bit going off this year of how at the, like what you just said, if the, if the top players in the world had gotten in a room together and come up with a way to design a world tour, basically it would, it would have been a great thing for golf, but the key there being the top players not communicating enough with each other, not coming up with a overall plan to address any issues. A lot of people, a lot of the top guys, the guys that have left have issues big or small with the PGA tour, how it's run with the DP world tour, how it's run, how the money's shared, how the decisions are made, all that. Yet there was never like a, a, the meeting in Delaware being that historic was like the top players don't get in the same room and come to an agreement of how can we create value together? How can we do this? There's uh, they uh, for a long time have not really realized the power that they hold within their own tours to push issues forward, make changes within it because there's no unity. Phil can come to Jay Monahan and say, Hey, I believe this needs to change, blah, blah, blah. And Billy Horschel can have his ear. That's totally different. And Kevin Knock can have his ear and be totally different. James Hahn is saying something different to him. And the way the tour structured, there's no, there's no message, but look at when the top players got in a room together and said, Hey, Jay, make this happen, elevate these events for this. And we're all going to play them, make it happen. It happens. It's not done, done deal, but it happens. So that's where I guess um, some of my, it, it's hard. I don't know where to lay the blame on an ability to get some of this stuff done because I hear exactly what you're saying on Australian players not be able to come back and play this time of year uh, in Australia and how the, the wraparound season has, has wrecked that. That's one of the things that's going away. And that, you know, players are not going to be, it's not going to be the part of the FedEx Cup season starting next year. You know, how could we have gotten to that faster so it happened before the Australians went up and left? There's Cam Smith and Leash, you know, especially. Like, we were almost there, right? If that was such a big part of the decision, which we all know money is is a much bigger part of the decision, but if that was one of them, how could we have gotten there as a group? I say we as if I'm one of the players and I'm not, but I just, my interests are always looking out for what I think to be the most entertaining golf, right? And um, I think the PGA Tour is, is, through just so much stuff being shaken at them or and so much stuff falling through. They've kind of cleaned out a lot of stuff, hopefully, and it will make a better product, hopefully. I mean, TV is a different discussion, but getting those guys together more often is going to be a great thing. Now, um, you know, is that at the expense of the DP World Tour, Australian Tour, Asian Tour? I would say yes. I think that's pretty obvious at this point, but does that give the world the most entertaining golf is, you know, an ever-evolving discussion. I don't have a great answer to it. Yeah, and the other thing that people don't ever talk about is the influence of the managers. So, of course, the player managers are going to push their guys to live because they're getting, I'm assuming they're getting hopefully not more than 10%. If they're paying them 20% of these contracts, they're crazy. But, you know, the, the, the European tour was strong when the money in America exponentially wasn't the incredible amount of money they play for now. I mean, Curtis Strange was the first guy to win a million dollars in 1989 or something, or Tom Kite, maybe. I think it was Curtis, but... 
the European players stayed in Europe and played in Europe because they were getting pretty good appearance fees. But the appearance fees they were making in Europe, once Tiger turned up, were dwarfed by the extra prize money they could play by by playing in America. So it's a, you know the the game's complicated and it's evolved and it's changed and it, the politics and what's going to happen is this is the, one of the most interesting times in golf ever. It's fascinating what's going to how it's all going to play out. But golf is not better when it's not strong around the world. And one of the benefits of the live thing seems to be they're going to throw a truckload of cash at the Asian tour, which, you know, I played the Asian tour in the early 80s and it was a complete shambles. There were 10 tournaments cobbled together. And apart from the Japanese who ran the last tournament incredibly well, they would make the same mistake every single week. There'd be something crazy that happened because they were just 10 tournaments cobbled together to make make a circuit. But... You know, there's lots of money in Asia, and there's lots of interest in golf in Asia, and there are some, you know, there are some decent golf courses to play on, and you know, it it, it should be a good tour in Asia. So one of the benefits might be that the Asian tour becomes the thriving tour, and if you're a young Australian player, do you go to the European tour school, or the Asian tour school? That was never a question until now. Probably now they're better off going to the Asian tour school. So. You know how this all plays out is, and the problem is that it's going to take twenty years before there's a clear answer. No one has a clear answer. No one's got really a vision of what's going to happen. We're all guessing. In twenty years, we'll look back and go, "Well, he should have done that, and Pelly should have done this, and Monaghan should have done that, and Norman should have done that, and Bryson should have done that, and Cameron Smith should have stayed in the t- whatever." There are going to be a whole lot of unforeseen circumstances and, and consequences that no, but no one knows what they are now. Which, which is why at, at, at at the same time, it's it's fascinating. It's scary. It's it's all those things. It's it's the game's in turmoil, and how it all falls out will be fascinating to watch. And and hopefully, it comes out better at the end of it. I I, I do think that there is. I, I'm surprised there's not more chatter around this. It felt like the co-sanctioned event between the DP World Tour and the PGA Tour at the Scottish Open last year seemed like a great success, and I think. More, more things along those lines, more strengthening the PGA Tour can have with any of the of the world tours seems like a win and that Race to Dubai points were given out for that one. Cash was given out and FedEx Cup points. And it was, it was you know, you're simply watching that one tournament, yet there's all kinds of sub races going on underneath it that were, you know, that, that combination seemed to work really well. And, you know, if they're going to start elevating events, why wouldn't some of these elevated events go to other places around the world to help support like Hideki Matsuyama's made an enormous commitment to the PGA Tour and brought an entire market to the PGA Tour. How do they go about rewarding him for that? And, you know, does that, um, all stuff that is above my pay grade, but um, it, it, it does seem like um, there's a chance. And, you know, is the answer now that this fall season is no longer a part of uh, the, the wraparound season, does a bunch of cash grab events in other countries, including Australia, including Korea, including Japan, and including the Middle East. Do those happen in the fall that, you know, are not optional? But, hey, if you're going to put up 20, 25 million bucks, like Roy McIlroy's probably going to show up at the Australian Open if that was the case, if that was, you know, a, a co-sanction. I don't know. That's that's just where it's like, does this open up the fall season really give um, an opportunity for world golf to to take off outside of live? And I don't I don't know the answer to that. And we need, I mean, teams golf is great. I mean, the most fun we had as kids was playing team golf. It was brilliant. You know, in, in Australia, there were always the six states played junior and senior matches amongst each other. So it was the first time that, you know, I met Wayne Grady and played golf with Wayne Grady and Peter Senior. And so 
teams golf is brilliant fun. So we need more teams golf. We need more match play. We need. I mean, serving up the same seventy-two hole stroke play week after week gets pretty tiring and pretty boring and pretty old. And you know, the people love the Presidents Cup. They love they love the Ryder Cup way more than they love the Presidents Cup. But but when the Presidents Cup come to Australia, I mean, perhaps it's not such a big deal in America. But the Presidents Cup in Australia is a massive tour. People love watching the Presidents Cup. It's a great what? event. One of my takes is that it should go. It should never be in the U.S. It should no, just it should go never around, be in America. You're right. It should, it should go never be in America. Countries. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it should never be in America. I see the other side to the argument, but I think it should be a mixed event. I think with six women and six men, it would differentiate. If it it would differentiate itself from the Ryder Cup, I think it would be great for women's golf, and I think it would be really fun to watch. I think it would be a really cool event. So, and it's always going to be the poor man's Ryder Cup. But if they change it and make it a mixed event, then the international team become the automatic favourites because the six, I guess, six or seven of the best ten women in the world are, would would play on the international team. So you know, I I think that would be a compelling event that would be great to watch, and I understand why people would have the opposite view. But for me, if I was arguing it, then it's a no brainer to make it a mixed event. And you're and you're right. Don't play it in America. It doesn't need to be in America. I'm assuming the money is the reason why. I'm sure they make a ton of money off the the, the, the domestic ones. But yeah, it, it you know you can bill it if you really want to cater to American American arrogance. You can bill it as the Americans taking their talents on the road to show the world or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> you know the, the the state government here in Melbourne they pay the PGA Tour thirty million dollars for the Presidents Cup. So the event's making plenty of money. I mean, there are plenty of well, perhaps perhaps that's why it keeps coming back to Melbourne because it's the one government <laughs> so PGA Tour can find to keep paying for it. But it's 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 in Canada next time. I mean, Canada doesn't count. That's not going. Yeah, you know, that's that, that's not counting. It needs to go to Japan and South Africa. It was great in South Africa. It was it's great in Australia. I was at the one in Korea. The last day in Korea was a brilliant day in Korea. So when it goes outside of America, South Africa, Korea, and Australia. It's always a much more compelling event that, than it is when it's in, in, in America, I think. But, you know, and partly that's the, the home course, of, the, the hometown advantage the Americans have when they're playing at home. It's not as easy for them playing outside, you know, playing away from home. Well, last topic here, I, I want to be respectful of your time as well, but you mentioned it earlier, and I, I made sure we had to come back to this one too, of uh, the, the Vic Open, and I, I don't remember how many years now it's been where it's been a, a mixed tournament between men and women, two different tournaments uh, going on at the same time on the same golf course, alternating pairings between the men's and women's tournament. Um, watch that on the television. It's just fantastic television. The Australian Open this year is Kingston Heath and um, Victoria. As you mentioned, if you want to go to our YouTube channel, we got uh, videos we filmed there five years ago um, at, on, on those exact golf courses, two of the best golf courses in the world. Uh, mixed event, it, it, same format, is that right? And, and it's two different tournaments for, for this as well, but it's men's and women's, yep. Two different tournaments. So the players swap between Kingston Heath and Victoria the first two rounds, the weekends at Victoria. It's the same deal as the Vic Open, except that it's not an LPGA event. So the Vic Open was great when it was an LPGA event because the best, not all the best players came down, but lots of the best LPGA players came down. So the women's field is not going to be great this year because it's, there are not very many LET players coming down because I think it's the same week as the LPJ Tour School. The Europeans have a week a tournament the week before, so they don't get here until Tuesday night. So they've got to play or see two courses on Wednesday before they play on Thursday. So the women's field is not going to be great. And it 
for it to work, I think at some point it needs to be an LPGA tournament. But the concept is really good. The courses are great. Cameron Smith's playing. So they're going to hang it on Minji Lee, who's top three in the world. Cam Smith, who's top three in the world. Minmoo Lee, who's great fun to play. Leishman, Adam Scott's playing. So So Young Yu's going to play. So, so the top end of the women's field is pretty decent. But once you get below 30 or 40 players, the, it's going to be not that strong, which is, which is going to be a problem. And the question is, I mean, those courses, when you set them up for... The Women's Open was at Victoria in 2014, I think, before it went to Adelaide. The trick is how you set those courses up, how hard do you make the greens, because obviously the men can spin it much easier than the women can spin it. So if you're going to play concrete hard greens like those greens in all the iron tournaments, how do you manage that when you're playing with when the women are playing who play a much different game? So that's going to be a trick. I think they'll manage it okay. I, I think they're not going to get the greens as crazy fast as they normally do, which is a good thing. So the concept is really good, but if it's going to grow and develop, I think we need to get a stronger women's field. I look forward to watching that, though. I think, again, it was it's delight. I mean, it just gives you double the chance of having an exciting finish, right? If, if someone has a big lead on the women's side, and then the men's side might be interesting or vice versa, and I just... It's, I was amazed at how easy it is to watch two tournaments at once when it's, you know, all play on the same course. And you just saw so-and-so play, the, you know, the men play this 13th hole. Now you see the final group of the women come through. It's just, it's really fun. Cool yeah, concept. Yeah. So. No, no, the, the concept was great. And, and it's, I played Victoria. We played Victoria on, what's today? On Monday we played. The course looks fantastic. We, the weather's been terrible down here. We've had floods and it hasn't stopped raining. So the course is on the other side of the city, on the clay are, I mean, three or four of them have been underwater for three weeks. So the weather hasn't been great, but it's going to get better between now and when the tournament, the first week in December. So by, by the time the tournament comes around, the courses are going to look fantastic. It's the best time of the year to see those courses. It's great fun golf to watch. It's, it's going to be really cool, I think. Exciting. Well, Mike, thanks so much for jumping on, man. It's great to catch up with you. It's been a few years. I've been keeping up with you and uh, all, all you've been up to, and uh, we greatly appreciate you spending some time with us and sharing your perspectives. And we'll, we won't let five years go by again before we have you back on, if, uh, if that's all right with you. Okay, th- thanks, Chris. I enjoyed it. And I sent, a, I sent an email to Pierre Fulke the other day because you know, he'd done that work at Vixby. So I said, next year when I'm over, I'm coming over to see that course. I've got to see it because I always loved playing in Scandinavia. It was such a cool place to play golf. Yeah, you're gonna. We're, that episode will be out. Uh, the video will be out uh, as. Uh, let's see. I can get the date. November 9th, I believe that one will be. If great. If so, this, so. Um, yeah. So I Google Earth and like, oh, that course looks amazing. So, you know, I know Pierre's done a lot of work on it. So I'm looking forward to seeing that next year. So That'd be great. Yeah. All right. Look forward to it. All right. Thanks, Mike. Take care, and we'll have you back soon. Cheers. Okay. Thanks, mate. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! 